Hey you, thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial Herstory Master's Classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual Summer Educators Retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com giving or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make herstory. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Well, why don't you tell us what's happening in today's episode, yeah, Brooke? Yeah, I got to talk to a really incredible Professor Graham, who um, was teaching me all about Secretary Frances Perkins. She's Ooh. the first woman cabinet secretary, and she helped aid um, a lot of the refugees from Nazi Germany. Oh, I am obsessed slash secretly hate Francis Perkins. So let's get into this. Let's get into this. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. So, Brooke, I want to orient folks. Frances Perkins becomes um, the uh, cabinet se- labor secretary uh, under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, who is Great Depression era, World War II era president, and she's the first um, she's the first woman to sit in a in a presidential cabinet, which is really really cool. Um, so, tell us what do you what do you guys yeah, talk about? I got to talk to Rebecca Bernier Graham. She's an author. She's coming out with a book around um, Frances Perkins, but she's also an, a history teacher at the Madeira. I think I'm going to say this right, Madeira School, mm. where she's an adjunct professor. And the Madeira School is um, all women. Oh, cool. which is really cool. So yeah. she has some really interesting perspectives from a, a teaching. Um, position and working with all female students. She also went to all female colleges, um, undergrad, and then she got. I think she got her grad from her undergrads from Mount Holyoke, mm-hmm. and then her MA in history is the American University. Interesting, so pretty pretty interesting. Um, Dr. Graham was really fun to talk to, and she also. Um, if you're a Patreon, we have a little special thing later on, but um, she came on the Zoom call with a really cool image in her background. So we'll we'll talk to you about that later. Oh, but, fascinating. But yeah. Well, I'm really excited. I want to just like add a little context, which is on our website, we have um, articles for the 1920s and for the Great Depression. Oh, cool. Um, where we highlight Frances Perkins's work in those periods. And it looks like we're going to be talking about a little bit later under World War II. Yep. Um, but I hope everybody checks out those articles about her. Um, we do talk a lot about some of her like 
internalized sexism that she has um, because she definitely during the depression works to like push women out of jobs to make space for um, fathers in particular to have jobs. She does a lot around immigration law. Yeah. And so a lot of the things and policies that she puts in place is around trying to be helpful to immigrants coming to this country, mostly men. Yeah. Um, Which is really interesting. But um, Dr. Graham gets into all of that, has some really cool first person accounts of some of her her labor laws but also her upbringing which is really interesting because most women that we talk about in the same time period were a lot of women of privilege Mm. so kind of an interesting background there too yeah yeah she's she's an amazing figure i hope people integrate her into their courses so let's give them the tools let's have uh, dr graham introduce herself sounds good I'm Rebecca Brenner-Graham. I have a PhD in history from American University. I am a history teacher at the Madeira School in McLean, Virginia, and I also adjunct a couple classes at American. Um, I live outside of Washington, D.C. with my husband, and currently I'm writing a book on Frances Perkins's refugee policy for Kensington. It'll be out in 2025. That's exciting. Congratulations on the book. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, no, well, that's why I'm excited to talk with you about this topic. So what topic are we talking about and why is it such an important topic for teachers to bring into the classroom? The story here is that of Labor Secretary Frances Perkins trying to help Jewish people escaping Nazi territory from 1933 through 1940. The Immigration Naturalization Service was in the Department of Labor from 1933 through 1940. Before 1933, the immigration and naturalization pieces were separate. And in 1940, Congress actually moved the INS to the Department of Justice instead of the Department of Labor, partially because of Frances Perkins's efforts to help refugees. She was the first female cabinet secretary in U.S. history and the longest serving secretary of labor in U.S. history. She became FDR's labor secretary when he was inaugurated in 1933. And one of the first things that she did as labor secretary was to reverse precedence of focusing the immigration policy on deporting people. Um, which was the focus of U.S. immigration policy during previous presidential administrations like Coolidge and Hoover. It was really disorganized. There were several people when she got there that informed her that they were in charge of immigration. And she it took a few years, but she became in charge of immigration. And she tried to use the powers that she had to help people. In 1933, in addition to Franklin Roosevelt becoming president of the United States, Adolf Hitler became chancellor of Germany that January. And in the 1930s, we did not know about the Holocaust yet, but he was very clear on how he felt about Jewish people in Germany and what he intended for their citizenship, which was that they were not going to have citizenship. They were not going to have a government protecting their rights in this world of nation states. And that created a refugee crisis. The labor secretary in the U.S., wanted to help people, but factors in both the U.S. and overseas made that job very hard. But so I'm working on the story of how she tried to help people and the thousands of people that she actually was able to help immigrate. And so incredible human being, incredible life that she led. And so I'm curious, 
where do you feel, what sources do you feel like you have to share with teachers that can really utilize these in the classroom and how can they guide students through it? Like what are some ideas for them to introduce this? Thank you. There are really three types of units that this story has found its way into for me as a high school teacher and as an adjunct. The first is when we talk about women in politics. When I started researching this story, I was actually a senior in college. Um, It was originally my senior thesis topic. And sometimes maybe older male people didn't see that the fact that she was a woman had anything to do with her experiences of these cabinet meetings and um, and other meetings with like the other men in politics. But she, by being the first female cabinet secretary in American history, that meant that she was navigating male spaces as a woman. And she didn't just disagree with a lot of people on immigration policies. She also had to navigate the subtleties of being a woman in those spaces. The second area that this might fall is when talking about anti-Semitism. I teach a 12th grade Holocaust studies class and we do a day or two on America and the Holocaust. Um, And in order to set that up, we first talk about um, anti-Semitism and why people had biases against Jewish people, both in the US and of course in Nazi territory. And it's complicated. It's hard to distill that to one answer. But the reality is that the policymakers at the State Department, many of them were vehemently anti-Semitic and they they told us who they were and that's that's who they were. Um, And then the third way that this falls into class, and this was actually just relevant to my class this past Friday when I was teaching um, 11th grade, the agenda this past Friday, which I guess was two days ago, was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And um, I actually did not mention Francis Perkins in class that day just because I don't bring up my book project constantly. But between 1882 and 1965, U.S. immigration laws were explicitly racist and discriminated based on race and nationality um, and ethnicity. And it was implicitly that way before 1882 and can argue that it, in many ways it's still implicitly that way today. But from 1882, when the U.S. excluded Chinese people from immigrating through 1965, when the U.S. finally got rid of the quota system, um, the quota system came from the Immigration Act of 1924. Unfortunately, that was on the books throughout the whole FDR administration and Perkins's tenure as labor secretary. The quota system set how many people could come from each country. And there were thousands of people from Western Europe and there were 100 people from China and Japan. Um, I always tell my students that's fewer people than are in this building right now, like by a lot, even though I work at a boarding school and um, the the school buildings are pretty small. That's 100 people is is nothing. Those were the exceptions, definitely not the lot. And I have not used these specific sources that I'm about to mention um, in my classroom yet, but I definitely plan to and I can imagine how one 
would use them. I think it's really helpful to have brief primary source excerpts that students can interpret and to have a change over time in them that I can see the arc of as a teacher. And we use those sources to get the students to see the arc of that story. And in this case, the arc is the story of Frances Perkins trying to aid refugees from Nazi Germany. The first one is from a State Department official named Paul C. Fletcher in 1933. He was a top State Department official, and he had this quotation that he wrote in a formal memo. And um, as far as the citation goes, like this is quoted in any book about 1930s refugee policy. When you get to know a topic really well, you see the repeat quotations, and this is that one. I think of it as the sleeping State Department quote. He said that, it now seems that only by quota reduction can the 600,000 Jews in Germany and the 60,000 in France seeking so-called religious refuge be prevented from entering the United States. At the moment, the people of the United States are apathetic in immigration matters. They are completely occupied with economic problems. Nevertheless, they look to us to protect their rights. And if ships begin to arrive in New York City laden with Jewish immigrants, the predominant Gentile population of the country will claim that they have been betrayed through a sleeping State Department. That 1933 quotation is emblematic of what the State Department was like. I mentioned that the Immigration Naturalization Service um, was under Labor Department jurisdiction, and it was, but the State Department still had control of the visas overseas. So in order for someone to become an immigrant, the State Department had to approve their visa. And they did that in consuls in cities, mostly in Europe, because the U.S. mostly didn't let in immigrants from other places at this time. Um, but that's the attitude of the State Department, that they expected that they interpreted the American people to expect the State Department to protect their heavy air quote right not to help immigrants. And that in many cases actually was how Americans perceived the federal government. Even labor, even predominantly white labor unions at the time tended to skew anti-immigrant, that they did not want uh, labor competition. After that, I would move toward a much shorter quotation from 1934. One of Perkins's right-hand men at the Labor Department was Charles Wysanski, who was actually 20-something. I think he was 27. He was the solicitor of labor. Um, he had a law degree and was a highly educated man. Um, and he worked closely with Perkins. He would draw up a lot of the legal plans that she envisioned. And he happened to be Jewish. He would actually go on to marry um, a refugee from Nazi Germany, Gisela Warburg, from the famous Warburg family. But Charles Wysanski in 1934 was writing to his mother about the German-Jewish refugee crisis. And he wrote, the secretary was most anxious to act at once. With characteristic feminine generosity and sympathy, she wanted at once to entertain applications from anyone to the full limit of the German quota. So that's barely three lines, but I can picture my students having a conversation about it for like 30 minutes. I mean, you have the solicitor of labor is a 20-something. He has not married yet. His future wife, um, 
had not immigrated yet. His family unit is his mother. I picture this like any um, 20 something calling their mother at the end of the day, um, but he didn't have a cell phone. So he corresponded by letters and he was telling his mother about this person he's working for, Frances Perkins, and how much she wants to help refugees. And that this, this is personal to Wyzanski and his family because they're Jewish and they had family in Germany too. Then he describes her characteristic feminine generosity and sympathy. He would not say that about any of the other cabinet secretaries because they were not female. She was not the only person in government who wanted to help um, refugees. I mean, Justice Felix Frankfurter on the Supreme Court was another one at this time. Um, Charles Wyzanski himself was someone in a position of influence in the Labor Department who wanted to help refugees. But her efforts to help were viewed through this lens of characteristic feminine generosity and sympathy. And you can imagine people in other government departments dismissing her because of her gender. There's one famous phone call a few months before this, actually, where the State Department called her on the phone to tell her what to do about immigration policy. And she told them that Immigration policy was under her department, but the way that they recorded this phone conversation was that she blew them off the phone. So maybe she did yell at them, but we don't know for sure because we know that the way that she occupied political spaces was perceived differently than the way that they did. So then the last line of this quotation from Wyzanski states that she wanted to entertain applications from anyone to the full limit of the German quota. And that brings us to the quota system, which I mentioned was established in the Immigration Act of 1924. And the German quota was, it was in the thousands, not the hundreds, but it was still not as big as England's. And it actually never filled between 1933 and then the late 1930s when German Jewish people actually didn't have passports anymore because they weren't they were no longer allowed to have documentation. But in the window, when it could have filled, it never did. And so that last line um, states that Perkins wanted to fill the quota. It actually didn't fill because in 1931, during the Great Depression, a couple of years before FDR was elected, Herbert Hoover, in one of his many floundering efforts to help the situation with the Great Depression, issued an, an executive order that State Department consuls overseas must adhere strictly to a clause from the 1917 Immigration Act. And that was the LPC clause, which stands for likely to become a public charge that anyone who would burden U.S. taxpayers was not allowed to be admitted into the U.S. And we know from histories of Nazi Germany that one of the first things the Nazis did was to deprive most German Jewish people of their means of earning a living. And that meant that these people that wanted to become refugees were likely to become a public charge or to need help to pay their bills initially, even though many times these people were medical doctors or like professions that typically would not have a problem supporting themselves in the U.S. So all of that 
from those three lines from Charles Wysanski in 1934. And I would probably have students ask questions about it too. Like, what do we not know from these three lines? That's great. And so do you see them kind of splitting up into smaller groups to do that kind of discovery? Or how would you run that in your classroom? It depends. It depends on the class and on the day and how energetic they seem. None of my classes are bigger than 16 students. So, And we all sit in a circle because it's a boarding school. So that lends itself well to a full class discussion. But sometimes if people are, and it's an all-girls school too, so that that reduces, I mean, there are definitely still gender dynamics in the classroom, but it means that there's no cis boy sitting there with his hands up constantly driving the conversation. So depending on the day, I might have students discuss each quote in pairs. And when I do small excerpts like this, I would have them answer first, what does it say? And then they would speculate on what does it mean? Um, That particular activity I did actually this past Friday when I was teaching the Chinese Exclusion Act because I had primary source excerpts from Chinese immigrants at the time where they were corresponding with their mothers. And I'd be like, what do we know from this? And then what might you be able to infer from this? And what if scholars had many examples of this type of source? What would they be able to infer from many of these? Great. What events or ideas should people understand from this moment and about um, this group of individuals kind of leading the charge here, as well as, you know, the female that we may not have heard about as well? Yes. And I do have a third source from her. We haven't heard her voice yet, but I I can um, put that on hold for now. It's really a story of Frances Perkins discovering the limits of American immigration law because she had been educated and trained and worked and experienced in a progressive tradition, mostly in New York from about 19, oh, I think she moved there in 1908 or 1909 through 1933 when she moved to DC to um, become labor secretary. So to answer your question, this Um, This story of Frances Perkins learning about the realities of American immigration law, that story is something that I actually learned when I began studying this. And I think that students can learn about how restrictionist American immigration law was through this story. Great. So you're saying traditional background of her upbringings. Tell me more about her background. Thank you for asking. I love that question. Frances Perkins was born in 1880 in Boston. When she was a few years old, her family moved to Worcester. Her dad opened a stationery shop. So she had an upper middle class upbringing in Massachusetts. She was descended from Puritans. She was very proud of her, I think, great uncle, Oliver Otis Howard, who had fought on the side of the U.S. in the Civil War. Um, Unfortunately, he had also contributed to the massacre of Native Americans. I'm pretty sure she did not understand or know that. Um, But her great uncle, Oliver Otis Howard, was also a white man, was the founder of Howard University in D.C., uh, HBCU. And he was integral to the Freedmen's Bureau program. So she was from a Massachusetts family that had been here since the Mayflower and viewed itself as Protestant reformers and progressives. But then she becomes a lot more 
you could call it liberal from them. She went to Mount Holyoke, which was how I initially became interested in Frances Perkins because I went to Mount Holyoke. She, um, so for those listening to tell us a little bit about Mount Holyoke, because I think being a New Englander, I know about it, but I'm, you know, some people may not. Thank you. It was the first women's college in the country. We have about 50 years on our sister school, Smith, that is down the road. And I mean, Smith's alumni include like Sylvia Plath and... um, But it's in that like group of colleges, right? So it's like the Seven Sisters or something. Yeah. Yeah, the Seven Sisters. um, But Mount Holyoke and Smith are also in the five college consortium of Western Massachusetts. When Frances Perkins went to Mount Holyoke, she was class of 1902. She studied chemistry and physics because she thought that they were the hardest. And I mean... That's fair. They might have been. Um, But she had one class that she took, American Economic History, with progressive historian Anna May Soule, who was a pen pal of of, um, W.E.B. Du Bois and some other really progressive social reformers at the turn of the 20th century. and Anna Maisel would take her students to the mills in nearby Holyoke, Massachusetts. Mount Holyoke is in South Hadley, not Holyoke, but Holyoke was down the road. And in the mills, she could see the conditions that people worked in before there were comprehensive labor laws, which she ended up contributing to passing some of those, like the um, limits on hours. But these People, mostly immigrants, did not have basic labor rights in terms of wages and hours that they worked, and they were working in dangerous conditions. And Anna Soul took her class to see that with their own eyes, and that contributed to Frances Perkins's own politics. When she graduated, she wanted to go straight into labor policy and politics, but nobody would give her a job because she was 22 and straight out of college. So she actually taught high school for a couple years. And while she did that in Chicago, where she got one of her teaching jobs, she would volunteer when she wasn't in school at Hull House, which I know has been on multiple of your other episodes, Hull House, the settlement home in the Chicago area co-founded by the famous social reformer, Jane Addams. And so Perkins comes from that tradition. And she did that for a few years in her 20s before she moves back to the East Coast. First, she had a job in Philadelphia where she worked in labor rights movements um, with immigrant communities and with African-American communities in Philadelphia, um, including, um, so this would have been in the early 1900s, so including people who had been emancipated from slavery in the the 1860s, but also their direct descendants who had limited means to support themselves because their parents had been enslaved. So she also began taking um, politics and economics and sociology classes at the University of Pennsylvania on the side to learn to advance her education. And then after like a year and a half or so in Philadelphia, she moved to New York City where she would be for a while. That's where she met her husband. That's where she earned a master's degree from Columbia. And I always forget the name of it, but it is basically the intersection between politics, sociology, and economics. Um, I think every college has like their different name for that intersection, but that's 
that's her background and her training. And then she had multiple labor organizing jobs in New York City. And during what time period is this that we're talking about? Just to reframe. Now we're in the 1910s, which brings okay. us to 1911 when she was across the street from the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire when it happened. She saw that with her own eyes. I think you had a previous episode about the Triangle Factory fire. And that was burnt into her brain and an important moment for her. After the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, the New York government ended up having more opportunities for someone like her to become influential in policy. She ended up becoming the state's industrial commissioner under Governor Al Smith and then Governor Franklin Roosevelt, which was how she became acquainted. And I mean, even that transition from Smith to Roosevelt is interesting in itself because Smith runs for president and manhandles FDR, who was sick with polio, into running for governor. FDR ended up doing it. He won. Smith did not win. So then Herbert Hoover was president and Franklin Roosevelt was governor of New York. Stock market crashed. Great Depression hit. And Frances Perkins was by Franklin Roosevelt's side doing labor reforms, um, running actually the largest state labor department in the country in New York. Um, And under a Democratic governor, Franklin Roosevelt, who also had significant political capital because the state loved his fifth cousin, sixth time removed, or sixth cousin, fifth time removed, Theodore Roosevelt. He had that Roosevelt name. So they were able to do a lot. She was able, and she was an on the grounds worker. Like she would go to factories. She would witness labor conditions. She would mediate labor disputes, actually. There was one example that always stands out to me in New York, um, in, well, when she was working for the governor, she was in Albany. So this was farther outside of the city. There was a group of, I think, coal miners who were stockpiling dynamite, and she helped to mediate that labor dispute. And so, Rebecca, so our listeners know, um, at this period of time, women holding a position like this, was this common? Is this rare? Yeah. Very rare. She was, um, she was one of the only women in these rooms. Um, When she worked for Al Smith, he had a campaign director who was a woman, and I am blanking on her name. Um, I could, (laughs) it's in one of the chapter drafts that I have so far. Um, And she was, she was in the room. And sometimes Al Smith would actually bring his wife to make the woman that worked for him feel more comfortable. Um, that's that shows how few women were in these rooms. These meetings. also how progressive of him to think like comfort is key to making sure that women can feel engaged in a conversation. Way to go, Al Smith. <laughs> and so, so how does she start to really impact some policy changes here with her positions? When she becomes labor secretary, there's actually a recent academic article by Neil Hernandez, always want to give credit, that just came out in the Journal of Policy History. And it was, so he's a political scientist, which I am not, I'm a historian. So I was really interested in like the numbers that he crunched with these records about how he advances this thing that he calls political control theory, where there are multiple ways to change a policy that you don't like. 
a key way that Francis Perkins would influence policy in the Labor Department was if there was a budget for something that she did not approve of, such as rounding up people and deporting them, she would let the budget run out and then lay off the people who were doing that. So there were many people who worked for the Labor Department, some of them for more than 30 years, that they spent their time looking for immigrants to deport. Perkins was more interested in spending her time and Labor Department resources making the lives of immigrants better. And when they wanted to come to the U.S., either because their lives were in danger or because they wanted to um, get out of difficult conditions that were maybe not as dire. She wanted them to have better experiences in the U.S. She implemented a training program that I just learned about from this article by Neil Hernandez, where she, she and this training program would instruct the employees at places like Ellis Island to apologize when they had to interrogate someone. When they had to question someone, they would be instructed just to say, I'm so sorry first. And that would make the immigrants feel more welcome, as opposed to feeling that they were doing something wrong by entering the country, which is how they often felt previously. And so when you think about this time period and the challenges that she's facing, do we get any of her narrative from her first perspective of, of being the only woman? Does she bring that up at, at all? Very rarely. Okay. Her perspective, I mean, the most, there are two comprehensive sources from Frances Perkins. The first is her oral history at Columbia University. And I've read a lot of excerpts from it, but I'm going there for the first time during my work spring break in a couple weeks. Um, but then the other one is she published the first biography of Franklin Roosevelt. And it serves as her memoir because it's the only time she wrote a book about her experiences. It's called, is it called the FDR I Knew or the Roosevelt I Knew? I think it's the FDR I Knew. And it came out in 1946, a year after he died. So he died in 1945. Suddenly his brain hemorrhaged and then Truman became president and she left. She had actually asked to not be labor secretary anymore multiple times. And he had never accepted her resignation. It was grueling work. She was beyond burnt out, as we might say now. Um, But she was doing good work and he would not accept her resignation. So when he died, she left. But then she needed to support herself because her husband um, had some severe mental disabilities and could not support himself due to essentially unmedicated bipolar disorder. And then she was also responsible for supporting her daughter, um, who was a teenager when she was labor secretary. And and then later she was an adult. Um, But she had to support those people. And her money had gone into her husband's hospital bills. So she once she wasn't labor secretary, she needed a means to support herself. So one of the first things she did she wrote this book about FDR. She talks about her immigration policies in it, and she gives him credit for it. She actually never sought credit for her accomplishments, and there are several reasons why. One is culturally, she was um, from 
not a braggy culture in among the New England descendants of Puritans. Um, another is that she was worried about the safety of her daughter because sometimes the the children of public officials would be harassed or um, biographer Kirsten Downey points out that Perkins was especially horrified by the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, not too far earlier. Um, and so she wanted to protect her daughter. Third is if she drew attention, whenever there was attention on her, unfortunately, it usually was not good. And I would argue that that was largely because of her gender and the different expectations, and also because of her progressive policies. But she wanted to stay out of the spotlight. Um, she did not keep a diary. She was less than candid in her letters. And you really have to read between the lines, except for um, in the Roosevelt I knew, or the FDR I knew, it's, it's pretty clear that she articulates policies as she saw them and then credits them to him. And one of these that she mentions in that is something that I that I forgot to mention earlier, so I'll mention it now, which is the extension of visitors' visas. And this is something that was made possible by Perkins because one of the first things she did on immigration policy was to stop deporting people without cause all the time, like previous people had been doing. And that meant it so somebody that was in the U.S. and did not have citizenship could stay. And that was a strategy that she proposed to help refugees from Nazi Germany. So then in November 1938, Kristallnacht happened in Germany where, um, where Nazis, they burned synagogues, they torched businesses, they sent Jewish people to detention camps. At that point, sometimes they'd get to come back, but other times they would not get to come back. And she proposed that German Jewish people in the U.S. should not have to go back. And U.S. newspapers covered Kristallnacht. And Americans were outraged by it, even if um, sometimes the way that white people in the U.S. treated black people in the U.S. was not too different than this. Um, newspapers expressed outrage over Kristallnacht, and that gave FDR the political leeway to say German Jewish refugees who are already present in the U.S., may extend their visas, it would be inhumane to send them back. And FDR said that in 1938, after Kristallnacht, Perkins had been saying that for five years. And he did not do that until there was enough public support, because that's how FDR operated as a president. That's amazing. Well, I love that she never took this credit. Do you think that that was of the time or that was her personality? Both. Probably more her personality. I I would not, I mean, she's a big person in history. I would not describe her as a big personality. I wish I could meet her. I would love to have coffee with this person. But <laughs> love that. Um, well, I'm excited about your trip to Colombia. That sounds fascinating to go check this out. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you really wanted to make sure listeners um knew more about and how to and this topic in particular? I really want to emphasize how Perkins was forced to adjust to the restrictionist American immigration laws. 
Um, so I'll share just a tiny bit of this third primary source excerpt that I have. Um, I'll share only the first half of it because I remember when I first found this in her correspondence at the National Archives when I was a senior in college and I had I, I had been reading all about how progressive she was and she had this line in uh, her book about FDR that says, quote, social justice would be my vocation. But then I get to this letter in the National Archives and Perkins writes, a great many people seem to hold the belief that there is some provision in the immigration laws for political refugees or for making this country an asylum for the oppressed of all nations. This is absolutely not the case. I just remember being so struck by her lines, people think the U.S. is an asylum. This is absolutely not the case. Because I remember in the multicultural era of the 1990s and the early 2000s having to memorize like Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus or The Great Colossus, whatever it's called, in sixth grade and learning about the age of immigration and how the U.S. is a nation of immigrants. And Perkins thought that it was until she became charge of American immigration policy. She thought that it was a nation of immigrants from her place of, of relative privilege until she became in charge of American immigration policy and learned that there were like very limited legal mechanisms to help immigrants. And just the assertiveness of her words, this person who usually was not a big personality in conversations, that she says, this is absolutely not the case. It was just striking to me. And that's why I'm writing this book about the story of her discovering those limits. Fascinating. I can't wait to read this. It's going to be really fun. Um, and probably highlighting things that you're highlighting today with that. So I really appreciate that. But also getting a chance to dig deeper and bring her story forward more and more for people to have and incorporate into this topic is fantastic. So that's really exciting. And so Dr. Graham, in the background of your, your image today that you have here on Zoom, there's a photo. Can you describe it to our audience? Thank you. Um, so I guess I haven't really changed my Zoom background since like April 2020 when everyone was. I'm not sure why I felt like doing that today. Probably because at some point in the last couple of years, someone that I'm thankful to but don't know who they are put a lot of Francis Perkins images on Wikimedia Commons. Wikimedia Commons, so they're, they're free copyright. Um, and the picture behind me has Francis Perkins sitting at a table um, surrounded by Congress people who are mean-spiritedly questioning her. And that is the impeachment hearing of Frances Perkins. Frances Perkins was impeached by US Congress. She was impeached because she tried to give a fair chance to an immigrant named Harry Bridges, who she knew was a socialist. Um, he was also a labor organizer out on the West Coast. The Harry Bridges chapter is one that I have not finished my research for yet, but he was a labor activist on the West Coast who led a strike and she wanted him to have fair treatment in the US immigration system. But it turns out that he was a member of the Communist Party and people in the US government were very upset with her for not deporting him immediately and they impeached her. And she was, I mean, I am, this is probably, I'm excited to research a few of the chapters that I haven't finished my research for yet. I am very excited about this one. 
just because of the political drama of it. She had to waste her time preparing for these impeachment hearings. And I came across this topic for the first time in 2014. My senior thesis in college was 2014 to 2015. I was Mount Holyoke class of 2015. And um, the following year in 2016 was the Benghazi hearings, or maybe that was fall 2015. And I remember watching footage on the TV and I don't know, the dry cleaner, wherever, because I live in the Washington, D.C. area. And actually, I think it was in the gym in my apartment at the time. Um, and Hillary Clinton looked kind of like Frances Perkins. She was being questioned incessantly over something unfortunate that happened that was not her intent. And the questions were not in good faith. And it reminded me of this scene behind me about Frances Perkins um, in her impeachment hearings because she wanted to give Harry Bridges, a labor organizer, a fair chance. And U.S. congressmen were not willing to assume Frances Perkins' best intentions. They were not willing to give her a fair chance. So, yes, students, the first female cabinet secretary in U.S. history was impeached. She was not convicted, but she was impeached. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Graham, for this topic and this this incredible story of this amazing woman. And so we're excited about your book coming out, which will be really fun. But thank you so much for joining us and talking about this. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.